Please turn to John chapter 1, verse 14. While you're turning, story is told of a naturalist who, as he was walking in his garden, came across an anthill covered with a swarm of ants that seemed greatly agitated as his shadow fell on them. If only those ants knew how kindly I feel toward them, he thought, they would not be disturbed at my presence. Following this line of thought, he found himself wondering if a man would ever communicate his thought to ants. No, he decided that's impossible. For a man to teach an ant what he's like and to convey them his thoughts, he would have to become an ant. Then like a flash of lightning came this thought. That is exactly what the God of this universe, infinitely high as he is above us in his being and his thoughts, had to become a man to teach man to know him and to know his thoughts. C.S. Lewis wrote, The second person in God, God the Son, became human himself. He was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of a particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone, British, you know, stone instead of pounds, uh, the eternal being who knows everything and created the whole universe, became not only a man, but before that, a baby. And before that, a fetus in a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. Wow. We're in the prologue to John's Gospel. His introduction, if you will. And we've seen, as John has taken us through this, that first of all, the Word is God, the Creator, the source of life and light. We've seen that even though the light illuminates the world, the world, indeed, even his own people, Israel, did not recognize the light when it came. Nonetheless, those who did receive the light, and they received it by faith, became children of God. Now John is going to conclude today with his introduction. And he's going to finish up as he started out. He started out with the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's going to end up with the Divine Word also. Just as he concludes with that same Divine Word invading human history. This is an inclusio, is the fancy term, or bookends, as I call it. you know, marks off the beginning and the end of John's introduction and gets us ready for the story of Jesus Christ that he's going to tell us, the history of the gospel. So starting in verse 14 then today, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, Which word is he talking about? Again, he's talking about that same word that we saw in verses 1 through 5. That word that is no less than God. No less than divinity. That word that is the creator of everything that's created. The source of all life and light. That has to be the greatest miracle of all time. The most stupendous words that have ever been spoken or written down. The word became flesh 
word translated became here is in a tense that's called the errors tense. That's a past snapshot type action. And it contrasts, doesn't it? Because the word was deity, imperfect tense, continuous past action. You know, he always was. Before anything was ever created, Jesus was still deity. There was never a time when he wasn't. There was never a time before time. If you look at it from a physics standpoint, that time is matter moving through space, so before creation, before what they call the Big Bang, of course we know who made it go bang, um, that there was no time. So outside of time, even, for eternity, the Word was God, continuously. But then, when it comes to Him becoming flesh, that happens at a point in time. That was something new. He hadn't been flesh up to that point. Weiss translates the Greek verb here as entering a new mode of existence. At a point in time, he entered a new mode of existence, that of being flesh. Paul makes the same distinction. If you look in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he wrote that Jesus was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He did not become the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God. Paul also wrote that Christ was from Israel, in Romans chapter 9, according to the flesh, but really is overall God-blessed forever. And we talked about that when we were studying Romans, how that's a tremendous verse about the deity of Jesus Christ. That who is the Messiah? Well, descendant of David according to the flesh, but in reality, God overall, blessed forever. Now, while Paul will often use flesh in a negative sense morally, and we often will do that, oh yeah, I'm really, I'm really in the flesh today, don't, you know, I'm, you don't want to be around me, I'm grumpy or whatever, you know, why? Because I'm not walking according to the Spirit. That's not how John is writing here. John uses it with a little different shade of meaning, and he basically is just saying human weakness. You know, he's not, he's not focusing on any sin, because certainly there was never a sin in Jesus Christ's life, but he's focusing on human weakness. It's the same sort of Greek construction we had in verse 1. Remember, and divine was the word? It's the same thing. The word took on the quality of flesh. The word didn't become nothing but flesh. That's certainly not the meaning. But he took on the quality of flesh. Or as the um, one translation has it, so the word became human. God became human. Imagine that. Now, this rules out the false teaching of the Gnostics that um, Jesus Christ only appeared to be human. It's, it's kind of funny because nowadays false teachers tend to have trouble buying that Jesus was God. Well, back in the first century, they had a group that had trouble buying that Jesus was human. Um, which, actually, I think that would be the more forgivable error, though both of them are deadly errors. Uh, but the docetetic Gnostics believed that Jesus Christ only appeared to be human. I guess he didn't cast a reflection in mirrors or when he walked he didn't leave footprints. You know, it was just a hologram, if you will, of a human being. 
but they would never use that term. And that's why John says elsewhere in 1 John uh, chapter 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He was battling that specific false belief. But this is also an ultimate expression of Christ's humility. John, uh, John is talking really about the same thing that Paul does to the Philippians when he says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul used very precise terms there in his Greek. For instance, the Greek word translated form, morphe, uh, we know things like metamorphosize and that sort of thing have come into our language. Morphe signifies a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. That's a morphe. So the translation of the New International Version is, therefore, in the, uh, being in the very nature God. Okay, It's not saying an outward form in distinction to the inward reality, but rather an outward form that expresses the inner, inward reality. In the same way, by the way, when you're being metamorphosized, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 12, being changed, it's being changed from inside out. It's so that your outside expresses the inward reality of the new creature you are in Christ. In this case, it's his outward form expressed the reality of being God. And yet, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That can be better translated as something to be used for his own advantage, uh, something to cling to, to hold on to tightly, uh, something to be exploited, is another translation. And my favorite, uh, the God's Word translation on this said, although he was in the form of God and equal with God, he did not make, not take advantage of this equality. Okay? But instead, he emptied himself. Now, the Greek word translated emptied, to empty yourself means to divest yourself of position and privilege. Let's think that one through a little bit, because I, I've read some liberal theologians that would try to say, oh, he gave up being God. And this is a very strange idea, because how could one who is eternally God, eternity involving all time and before time, ever give up being God. You can't. That's not something that even God could do. But, he could give up his privileges as God. Entirely different thing. He couldn't give up his essential character, but he could give up his privileges. And that's what he did. Though he deserved to be on the throne of the universe, he became a baby in an occupied country. The Greek word translated form here in the next in the next case is exactly the same as the previous verse. Christ, he took on the form of a servant. Well, Christ's underlying nature 
was to be a bondservant. This is an important thing to understand, that God himself has a servant heart. We're talking about having a servant heart. You know, I, those, who, those who rail against God, I don't think realize that God has a servant heart. They're going, God demands me to worship him, and God demands this, and God demands that, and he's a, you know, this despot setting in rule over the universe. No, actually, the biggest servant of all is God. The greatest servant of all. That is the heart of God. If you want to know who the Father is, He has a servant's heart. <laughs> You're talking, Deborah was talking about how you know, fathers sometimes get in the way, sometimes express things. My, uh, my own dad, when we were growing up, took us on all these camping trips. We were always going camping. And I, did, I developed you know, an appreciation of camping by camping with my dad. Interesting thing about that is I found out as an adult uh, that my dad hates camping. Yeah. Uh, now he's probably been, you know, he's with the Lord now, so he's probably been freed from that particular infirmity, and now he loves camping. But <laughs> of course, hating camping is a sin, right, Ted? <laughs> but but you know, that just floored me. Well, why did you take us on all those camping trips? The answer, because camping's good for kids. And I was like, wow. Okay. Now yeah, that's just a little bit of servant's servant's heart. Yeah. God's infinitely bigger than that. But it definitely pointed me the right direction there. Yeah. So his underlying nature, his his morphe, besides being God, is to be a bond servant. And he took on a nature that was suitable to that. Jesus Christ made himself the servant of all. The Son of Man did not come to be served, he says in Mark 10.45, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, his heart is to be a bondservant. God's heart. Matter of fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it slave, to be a slave to all. Now, and being found in the likeness of man, or human human being, uh, the Greek word translated likeness there means a state of having common experiences. Doesn't again, that's not the docetic idea that he was a clever hologram that just looked like a human being, but really wasn't. No, this is he has common experiences with us. He went through birth. He went through growing up. You know, he had he got tired when he took long, these long walks because that was the only way you traveled around if you weren't part of the aristocracy. You walked. Uh, you know, he had all of the same aches and pains and you know stuff that the rest of us do. He knew temptation. He knew you know trials, victorious, victorious over every single one. But he knew him. He knew him. So he had common experiences with us. And he humbled himself, it says. Humbled himself to the point of death. That common experience too. See, Christ had to become flesh to die for us. You see this in the Old Testament, Leviticus 25, with the, the kinsman-redeemer idea. 
if you were an Israelite and you ended up in slavery, that what you're, or uh, if you died and there was some property that could be redeemed, all of those things were to be handled by your nearest relative. And that person was called the kinsman redeemer. Okay, that The idea was that only your relative could do that for you. And Jesus Christ, in order to die for us, had to be a human being. As God, he couldn't do that. As the unique God-man, he could. He could die on the cross for us. The author of Hebrews argues, in Hebrews chapter 2, that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, to make a sacrifice that satisfied justice for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of all those who are tempted. A lie from hell is that God does not know what you're going through. Simply not true. He knows what you're going through and then some. Jesus Christ got tempted in ways that you or I will never experience. So, he definitely understands. But that word also, besides becoming flesh, dwelt among us. Uh, The Greek word translated dwelt meant literally live or camp in a tent. Okay. See, I told you, not liking camping was a sin. (laughs) And therefore it came to mean dwell temporarily. Temporarily, rather. Now, Jesus Christ only lived among us 33 years. That was temporary. He didn't build a permanent home here at that point he was living in a tent there's a parallel to that in the Old Testament they had the tent the tabernacle of of their wilderness wanderings and what stayed with the tabernacle the Shekinah which means the the residence of Yahweh literally Shekinah but the Shekinah the visible glory of God stayed with the tent but now where's the visible glory of God Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Shekinah, the visible glory of God. And that's where John goes next. And we saw his glory. The word translated saw there means to have an intent look upon something, to take something in with one's eyes, with the implication that one is especially impressed. Uh, We get our word theater from the Greek word theomai that, that is used here. So it was a John saying, we saw the spectacle. Yeah. We saw this. Moses wanted that. You know, if you read in Exodus 33, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he, he, that is God, said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. When I have taken my hand away, you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. By the way, this gives us a, a clue 
why God doesn't just openly reveal Himself to the whole world all at once. I, I, you hear that oftentimes from folks who don't know the Lord Jesus. And they'll say, well, you know, if Jesus would come down right now and appear before me, you know, or if God, why doesn't God just reveal Himself to everybody? And, you know, that would be it. Well, if God revealed Himself to everybody, everybody with unatoned for sin would die like that. Okay? He, God makes it clear that His holiness would be destructive if everybody were to be, to, to be able to see it visibly. On the other hand, so what is this we saw is glory? Because the glory of, Christ, of God was veiled in Christ. Most people didn't get it when they saw him. Most people just thought they were seeing an ordinary Jewish rabbi. Yeah. But the transfiguration was different, wasn't it? There was. Um, it's interesting because right before... Uh, the transfiguration is recorded in Luke. In the 8th chapter, um, they're talking about when will they... Jesus is talking about how some will see the kingdom coming you know, and not die first. And then it says, some eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, his appear, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, you can always count on Peter to have something to say whether he has anything to say or not. Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll make some shrines, you know, have a nice little shrine up here on the mountain, you know. Not realizing what he was saying. I love Luke's <laughs> analysis there. He didn't know what he was saying. He was just talking, babbling. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed to begin to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, shut up. Listen to Jesus. Okay? <laughs> You're just babbling. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they'd seen. John says, we have seen his glory. There was at least one incident. Uh, Peter mentioned this later said for when he received honor and glory from God the Father such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain 2 Peter chapter 1 John you could argue had one more instance like that though I think this was written before Revelation but in Revelation chapter 1 John also gets to see the, the risen Christ. So there is, he indeed, though, qualified to be able to say, we have seen his glory. Most people didn't. Most people didn't get it. He said it's glory as of the only begotten from the Father. That Greek word translated only begotten emphasizes the unique relationship that the Father had to the Son. Now, some people have taken that and said, oh, see, begotten, he had a beginning. No, not necessarily. Uh, the word could be broken down into uh, mono, which is one, 
and genetes, which means a class as well as meaning begotten. So you have two different ways to take that. So the one and only would be some translation. Um, Harris notes the term was used to describe something unique, the only one of its kind, such as the mythological phoenix bird. Not saying it actually existed, but in early church fathers, uh, Clement thought that it did. And he referred to that by exactly the same term. It's something unique. Um, or, as I said, one and only. Uh, the New English translation and the NIV both translated that way. That glory of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, is full of grace and truth. Now that's interesting. You know, we know Jesus is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, uh, John 14, 6 says. But Jesus said to him, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We could take that impersonally if we didn't know John 14, 6. We could say, oh, Jesus is saying, if I have enough information, I'll be free. No, who's the truth? Jesus is. And since Jesus is the embodiment of truth, who sets us free? Jesus does. Yeah. It's not just collecting information in your head. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not it. It's the, it's the personal relationship with Jesus Christ that sets you free. And wasn't it ironic when, the, when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate? And Pilate goes, quid est veritas? You know, what is truth? Yeah. Truth was standing right in front of him. Right in front of him. Literally in front of his nose. <laughs> and he didn't see it. Now, Jesus is also, though, the source of grace. God's unmerited favor. You know, Paul wrote that to the Romans in chapter 5. He said uh, that grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, it's all, it's all about Jesus. It's all about grace, unmerited favor from him. And he's going to elaborate on this a little bit later in verse 17, so I'll hold my guns there a little bit. But the divine word, who is the creator, the creator of everything, became a human being. Think, who are we talking about when we see that baby in the manger? Who are we talking about when we see that man on the cross? Now, John also testified about him. This is not John, our author, John, but the, John the Baptist, uh, in verse 15. Uh, John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Okay. Only, I, I think, is verse 15 uh, actually John the Baptist speaking because otherwise we wouldn't be reading in verse 19 this is the testimony of John so I think we go back to the author of our gospel immediately it gets a little bit confusing on that but I believe that's how it works when the prophet Micah predicted Messiah's birth in Bethlehem Micah 5.2 what he said was but as for you Bethlehem Ephratah too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Whew. Days of eternity. That's long ago, all right. Yeah. So that was predicted. The same thing that told us to look in Bethlehem for the baby 
tells us that that baby's been a, been around for a long time. Yeah, he has a history before he has a history. H. A. Ironside put it well: John began to be when he was born on earth. Jesus Christ did not begin to be when he was born on earth. He already was. Barclay's translation says, He follows me in time, but he ranks ahead of me, for he existed before I was born. Now, the facts of the matter, if you compare other scriptures, Luke one twenty six tells us Jesus was born six months after John. John was conceived first. And also, he began his ministry later than John. John is already you know, started in his ministry when he baptizes Jesus Christ. So there's no sense in which Jesus was before John the Baptist. But because of his pre-existence, because he existed, he didn't start at conception, he pre-existed, then Jesus Christ is before John the Baptist. And certainly in preeminence. So what the picture here that John the Gospeler, <laughs> the evangelic Gospeler, the evangelist is, is writing for us is that the divine word stepped out of eternity into time. Imagine that. Now, he also goes on to say in verse 16, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Of his fullness we have all received. That Greek word translated fullness is used in the scripture about God. Uh, Colossians 1.19 says, for, um, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus. So it's a clear statement of the deity of Christ. Uh, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. I just doesn't that boggle your mind because we keep bumping into this every time we turn around that there are people who try to tell you that the New Testament never said Jesus was God and I'm going I don't think they've read it you know because it, you can't turn a corner without bumping into it it's everywhere huh different New Testament perhaps perhaps the Jehovah's Witnesses translation or some such but you know you can't uh, you can't miss it. Phillips translates this as, Indeed, every one of us has shared in his riches. There is a grace in our lives because of his grace. Because of the graciousness that he has, we have all received grace. That's the source. Unmerited favor comes from the gracious, giving, favoring heart of God. And then he says an interesting thing. He contrasts. It says, for the law was given through Moses. Now, I've mentioned this before, and, and actually I, I've, I've gotten a little bit of ribbing. I, um, I am such an enthusiast about the biblical concept of covenant. Uh, you may have noticed that a little bit. Okay, um, I've been accused of making every text in the Bible fit the concept of covenant somehow. Uh, this is one where I don't think it's a stretch, though. Because the Mosaic Covenant, the Law of Moses, is a certain type of covenant. And there's really, there's really three types of covenants. Okay. 
The first type is a parity covenant. That's if Ted and I made an arrangement. That would be a parity covenant because that's two equals. God doesn't have any of those. There's no equals. You know, so there's no parity covenants. The divine covenants in Scripture are always of the other two types. The one that the Mosaic Covenant is, is what's called a suzerainty covenant. Now, there will be a test afterwards, so remember that term. Uh, but that basically means a king subject type of, type of covenant. I'm the great king, and I'm telling you how it's going to be, and I'm going to make you swear to do certain things. Okay? And there's blessings for obedience, and there's cursings for disobedience. Okay, So you do what I tell you to do, and you get good things. You don't do what I tell you to do, and bad things are going to happen. Okay, Now, that's the kind of covenant that God makes with Israel. He lays down the law, if you will. Tells, and you know, in Deuteronomy, there are, two chap- there are a couple of chapters there, 28 and 29. Or bless- 27 and 28. I get them off. But anyway, in in the 20s, where they list a bunch of things that are going to happen bad if you don't obey, and they list a bunch of things that are going to happen good if you do. Okay? Very fascinating. So, the problem with the law, I mean, problem rather, is not with the law. Okay? Paul said in Romans 7, 12, So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There is nothing wrong with the law. What's wrong? Us, we're broke. We don't keep it. Okay? And every single human being, with the exception of one, does not keep the law. One person kept the law perfectly, and that was Jesus Christ. So, here we are with condemnation. But there's one other thing about the law. The law, at least the ceremonial part of it with the sacrifices, etc., can't actually take away any sin. Uh, Hebrews 10 says the law is only a shadow. For the law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form... Oh, there's our word morphe again. Hmm. Uh, Not the very outward expression of inward reality of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year make perfect those who draw near. All those goats, all those sheep, all those bulls never made perfect anybody. They did point to something. They pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But the law then is not a gracious covenant. The law is a do, uh, do and obey and or else you're going to be cursed. And the law is only a shadow. So the law won't get us there. law is good, but it won't get us there. It won't get us God's favor. On the other hand, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The new covenant, uh, the is a different kind of covenant. It's what's called a grant covenant. That's where I freely give you something. I freely give you the blessings. The blessings are what I give you. you know. And the only curse there is on those who try to take away the blessing. Okay, So there's no cursing. There's only blessing. And good behavior is based on gratitude. You know, it's not something I do to earn the blessing. New covenant was predicted by Jeremiah. Jeremiah said... Um, 
in chapter 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That would have been the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. By the way, the new commandment, according to Jesus, was love. And Paul says love fulfills the law. But I'll put it, I'll, I'll write it on their heart. I will be their God, they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What a promise. What a promise. Now, the New Covenant was inaugurated by Jesus. When he took the cup that they'd eaten, he said, This cup which is poured out for you is the New Covenant in my blood. Uh, he's the mediator of a New Covenant, it says in Hebrews chapter 12. So, what is John telling us? He's telling us the divine word, when he stepped into this world, brought the reality of grace to us. The very basis and reality for grace came when the word became flesh. And lastly, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. I was talking to Lois about this this week, and it honestly didn't occur to me until just yesterday that this is a great Father's Day verse. <laughs> it really is. I, you know, that was not by design, on my part anyway. No one has seen God at any time. That means all the Old Testament appearances of God are actually who? Jesus, before the Incarnation. If no one's seen God the Father. yeah. Or another way to take this, since God doesn't have an article here, grammatically that can emphasize His nature, not His person. That no one has seen deity in its essence. Okay, or Weiss translates it, absolute deity in its essence no one has ever yet seen. Okay. The only begotten God is in the bosom of the Father. That Greek word translated only begotten, remember, same as in verse 14, it means the only one or the, or the one and only, the unique one. Some translations would have here the only begotten Son. Uh, that's following the received text or the majority text, but the oldest texts read God. The only, the only unique God or the only begotten God. Some try to have it both ways in their translation. The New Revised Standard and also the complete Jewish Bible have something like, it's God the only Son. So, I think they're trying to take it both ways. <laughs> the only unique Son of God it says, who is in the bosom of the Father. That's the place of closest friend, fellowship and friendship. You know, think of the ancient meal where they laid on each other's chests. You know, that was your friend that you wanted laying on your chest. Uh, some translations are who's at the Father's side, who's closest to the Father's heart, who's in closest fellowship with the Father. All portray the idea of the relationship between the Father and Son. 
That is who has explained him. That word translated explained, exegeomai, means to set forth in great detail, to expound. Our English word exegesis that theologians use to mean to explain how to interpret a text or explain a text, it's a technical term, but that's the idea of laying it out, explaining it in great detail. That's what we've been doing this morning. Okay, That's what Jesus does with the person of the Father. He explains him. It's a technical term that's also used for the exposition of the law by the rabbis and divine mysteries by the priest. So, Jesus actually reveals the Father to us. Okay, Jesus taught in John chapter 12. He told a crowd, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. That's quite a claim. And they had the usual reaction, picked up the latest, the nearest rocks, and, you know, that sort of thing. At the Last Supper, remember Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us? I think most of us agree with it, would agree with that. Yeah, Lord, show us God and we'll be happy. That'll be fine. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Hebrews 1.3 says he's the exact representation of his nature. Exact representation. So, men and women, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus Christ. If you want to know the heart of God, Look at Jesus Christ. Is God a despot demanding service or is God the ultimate servant? Look at Jesus Christ and see the answer to that question. Does God sacrifice? Look at Jesus Christ. You'll see the ultimate answer to that question. Does God have mercy, compassion, grace? Yes. Look at Jesus Christ. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That's what God's like. So how do we apply this? Well, it tells us several things about Jesus Christ. That the divine word who is the creator became a human being. Got to be the most stupendous statement in the universe. The divine word stepped out of eternity into time. The divine word brought the reality of grace into the world and the divine word reveals God to us. So, examples for us. Humility. I mean, Jesus being able to humble himself to take on our form. As C.S. Lewis says, you want to get the hang of that and think how you'd like to be a slug or a crab, perhaps. Anybody want to sign up to become a slug? That would be my first choice. Servant's heart. God himself has a servant heart. The Lord Jesus had a servant heart. What an example for us to give up our prerogatives, our privileges. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christ did not die to give you your rights. But I think also, in terms of John's introduction, what he wants us to realize, to really let sink in, is who is that lying in a manger? Who is that striding into our world? And who is that dying on the cross 
for you and for me. It's the eternal Word who is, in fact, God. That's who it is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for invading our world. Thank you for the miracle of miracles that you became a human being and that you died on that cross for us. That you walked our streets, tasted the dust in the air, felt the sun beating down on you, but most of all, that you gave your life for us. Lord, may the wonder of that, the depth of that statement, never, ever leave our conscience so that our hearts would be filled with, with faith and with proper worship and gratitude to you for your amazing humility. In Jesus' name we pray.